Welcome to Let's Evaluate It. In this podcast, you'll hear from students at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana, who are taking a class all about public health programs and evaluation. Highlighting some of the biggest issues in public health today, we're going to bring in some of the coolest people we know to talk about some of the coolest things they know. 15 students, one pandemic, and six feet apart. We're ready to learn something new. We hope you are too. So let's evaluate it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Let's Evaluate It. I'm Shakina. And I'm Caitlin. And we will be your hosts for today. This episode will focus on global health, and we will be talking specifically about nutrition. What is global health? And is there a difference between global health and public health? What do you think, Caitlin? Well, when I think of global health, I kind of think about overall and what's going on everywhere, like with this pandemic. But when I think of public health, I think about what's going on right around us. You are exactly right. To add to that, public health is looking at the population in a given society. Global health looks at all populations in the world, and it argues that populations are connected and influence each other's health because of globalization. However, both are interested in individual, biological, environmental, and social organizational factors influencing health. Both public health programs and global health programs can be evaluated. If you are interested in evaluation, here is a fun fact for you. According to the CDC's Introduction to Program Evaluation for Public Health Programs, there are two types of evaluation. The first one being process, which wants to see if a program is doing what it is set out to do. And the next one is outcome evaluation. There are a few red flags evaluators conducting process evaluations need to attend to if they come up, such as transfers of accountability, dosage, access, and even staff competency. Did you know that, Caitlin? I did know that staff training could affect results especially if the groups aren't getting the program delivered in the same way. But I see how the others could be troublesome too. And I'd like to go off of that idea of access and talk about some relevant news. One issue in global health is lack of access with regards to food. In October, BBC published a news story revealing that the World Food Program had won the 2020 Nobel Peace Prize. The World Food Program is a branch of the United Nations that delivers food to combat hunger in countries in need, especially in times of war or following natural disaster. The Nobel Committee declared the WFP the 101st winner for contributing to peace through food security. As a part of their work, the WFP has fought hunger crises in Yemen, Afghanistan, Iran, and South Sudan. They put teams of workers on the ground who deliver things like tea, wheat, or other nutritional supplements. The WFP has played an important role for developing countries throughout this current coronavirus pandemic as well, because there's been issues with access to food and importations not coming through. For their winning, the WFP received a diploma, a medal, and a monetary prize. Now, let's jump into our next segment, a guest interview. 
Today we have the honor of having Dr. Nalupa Gunaratna as our guest interviewee. Um, Dr. Gunaratna is a professor in the Department of Public Health at Purdue University. She received her bachelor's from Cornell, a master's in agronomy from Purdue, a master's in statistics from Purdue, and a PhD in statistics from Purdue as well. Her work focuses on interventions to improve health and nutrition of individuals living in developing countries in Africa. Dr. Gunaratna, we are so very excited to hear about your work in Tanzania today. Great, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you. Um, to start, um, could you please tell us a little about the food fortification program in Tanzania? Absolutely, so, so Tanzania is doing fortification of grains. Um, um, corn or maize it's the, is the biggest crop, um, followed by rice, and both are locally produced. Um, wheat is, is largely imported and it's less important for the food supply, but it is also being fortified. So right now, um, there's fortification of wheat and rice, and that's mandated through legislation. And it's specifically fortification of um, industrially processed grains. So it's it only applies to grains that are being processed by kind of high volume millers. Um, and there's a lot more industrial processing of wheat because um, it's imported and people have it as flour than rice. Um, and there isn't any large scale um, industrial processing of, of corn. So, um, so what that means is that it is reaching people and it, it's available now and it involves um, fortification with multiple micronutrients, but because maize or, or corn is the major part of the diet, um, you know, that all part of the food supply is not being fortified. Um, so there are different nutrients that that um, people um, are fortifying with. Um, the one that that we looked at in my work was around folic acid fortification, but there are others as well. Um, iron, zinc, vitamin A, several B, other B vitamins. Folic acid is also a B vitamin. Um, rice is also fortified with folic acid, um, iron, zinc, or B12. Um, and still kind of waiting on the maize. And so um, folic acid is useful because folic acid, um, a lack of folic acid in your diet increases a woman's risk to have a child who has a neural tube defect. Um, and with intervention and in many other high income countries where folic acid fortification has been mandated, you see um, these drops in the rates of neural tube defects in the population dramatically. Um, because of the fortification. And so while that has been happening in high income countries, the gap has really been in low and middle income countries. So this was a, um, an effort to look at what that effectiveness would be in, in a lower middle income country. So you kind of talked about it a little bit, but what else led you to picking Tanzania? Yeah, so Tanzania, um, for me personally and my colleagues, um, we had a long-term relationship with, with groups there that were doing um, research and programs around um, public health and nutrition. Um, those colleagues were initially part of PEFAR, which is the um, President's Emergency Fund for um, AIDS Relief. That was a U.S. program that really made strides in HIV care and treatment um, and has since that and since kind of spun off and become independent in its various um, countries where they're active. Um, and, and like with so much of, you know, programming around HIV, they looked at more than just HIV and they became, they developed their capacity and expertise in, in other things, including nutrition. Um, and when 
there was this opportunity um, to work and look at kind of evaluating this impact of, of flower um, um, folic acid fortification <clears throat> of flower. Um, they were the ones who really did the work on the ground to, to look at that. Great. Um, so on your work with wheat flour folic acid consumption by women in Tanzania, could you tell us why you used a prospective cohort study design? Why was there not a comparison group used? Right. So um, the idea there was that that fortification was being mandated and then it was going to affect everybody in a population. So it wasn't really possible to um, to have kind of a comparison group that would be valid that wasn't exposed to fortified products. And so what we did was we looked at a population at a certain point in time and we had this prospective cohort then. Um, that point in time started when fortification was just being rolled out, but then we looked at them six and 12 months later as they get increasingly exposed to those fortified products. And so it was kind of a pre-post comparison was what we were able to do. Um, it would have been possible to maybe go um, outside our area. We were working in Dar es Salaam, which is a big peri which is a big urban area um, in Tanzania with a lot of like peri-urban communities as well. And that's where we were focused. But um, if you did kind of look for a comparison group outside that area, you would have other differences between those two groups, you know, in terms of income and mm -hmm. what women did, what their diets were like and all of that. So we, we didn't think that that would be a valid comparison. Okay. So what was the most challenging part of the evaluation on this project? Um, the biggest thing I think would would be was the the loss to follow up. Um, we had a fairly, um, you know, a fairly substantial amount of loss to follow up in our group. We were working with um, neighborhoods and communities in, in Dar es Salaam that are, are relatively low income. And what that meant was that a lot of times people would move. Um, they might not stay in the same place. They might go, um, you know, like they would change from one rental to another, or they would go live with others, or um, they also were were people who had very strong um, extended family connections in rural areas. And so they might go back to their home village. Um, there's a lot of moving back and forth. And so we lost track of, of many people. Um, and even if we were able to stay in touch by phone, um, for those of, of those of them who who had like a mobile phone, um, we needed to, to assess their folate status um, by by drawing blood and you know looking at biomarkers. And mm -hmm. so if they did move you know farther than we could follow them, um, we weren't able to get that kind of follow up from them. That does sound really challenging to try to keep track of everyone. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. Um, were you faced with any budget, time, or other political constraints in your evaluation that you had to overcome? Oh, there's always, <laughs> there, there's always budget things. That's just like, that's life. Um, um, yeah, and it, it's just the logistics of trying to find people, um, you know, six months later. When we first reached out to them, the way we, we found them was we wanted women of reproductive age because we wanted to, we knew that that was an important group if you're thinking about folate status and, and the risk of neural tube defects. You wanted women who were in the process of, 
of having children and, and building their families. And so we we initially had contact with them when they came to these um, maternal child clinics, um, you know, like when getting their kids for checkups and vaccinations and stuff like that, and then said, you know, would you participate in our study? So that first contact and that baseline was pretty easy because they were already in a health facility. Um, if they agreed to participate, we just drew some blood and gathered some information and that was better. But the, the six months and the 12 months, we had to find them at home, have them come to a clinic where they could do that blood draw. So they had to be willing. And, and we already knew these are moms with kids, you know, so little kids. And so they're busy. They have to make an extra trip um, for what? For a blood draw, which isn't something no, no one wants to do. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, so that that is definitely a challenge and just kind of chasing them down. That takes time and it takes um you know, in a big city, um, it, it'll take resources to to get that done. So that's, it's always a challenge. Definitely. Um, so what do you think helped engage participants? Um, and, and were there any other barriers to working with the population? Um, what do you think? Um, I mean, I think like a lot of studies um, where the benefit is not, there's not some kind of perceived benefit um, they are helping us um, try to evaluate, you know, a policy that's out there. And so they, they appreciate that. And, you know, but it's out of their goodness that, that lets us be able to do this kind of work. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't any, um, we always do something where we give, you know, some kind of gift or, you know, something to kind of just express our thanks and because they're spending time um, they're doing something that they'd rather not do, have their blood taken, you know, three times in a year. Um, but that doesn't, you know, a, a gift is nice, but it probably doesn't make up for everything that they're they're doing for us. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, in, in terms of engaging, there isn't, I guess, what I'm trying to say is there wasn't much incentive for them besides trying to, to help out. Well, that's nice. That's wholesome that they were able to participate and do that. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing. Um, what are your recommendations for researchers who are looking to work with people from different cultures and other countries? That's a great question. Um, I, I think that if you want to work in any population where, and it doesn't have to be another country, it could, you know, even be here, like where it's a population that you don't know well, um, just recognizing that you are an outsider, um, spending time with the people that you're working with and for um, to understand what the context is, what they're going through, um, what they feel is important and, and you know, developing that kind of linkage. And it, it, it helps, it, it's, aside from just being kind of, you know, maybe the right thing to do, but it also helps you understand what's going on with that population. It, it builds trust. Um, and I think just having that chance to to spend um, time with people to really understand what the issues are in terms of their health, um, it makes you a better scientist. It tells you, you know, what data you need to collect. You know, if women, um, I mean, ultimately, like for in this particular case, we're we're relying on people buying, you know, having these fortified foods, having them out there in the shops, people buying them. Um, in eating them. So what what drives all those choices? What are all the factors? Um, and there's a lot there. So like if women, um, you know, fortified these wheat, especially it's imported, it's going to be more expensive. You know, how does that 
affect when you're like, you don't have a lot of money for food. Um, how much are you actually eating? Where are you getting your food from? Um, even when it comes to, to rice or flour, a lot of times people don't buy like, you know, like a prepackaged thing of flour, like a, you know, a one kg bag or something. What they mm -hmm. often do is in some of these kind of community stores where they would buy their food, they would have like a big sack of flour. The vendor would have a big sack of flour and they would have, you know, they would scoop and they would, you would say, I want two pounds today. Um, and you would buy that amount. So what's in that sack? Um, you know, and can we know that that's actually fortified? Well, the label may say so, but do you have the confidence that's, that that is there? And that's, that's an issue. Um, in, in many countries if you know, just knowing that what a label, you know, if something's not labeled or even if it is labeled, are you confident that it is giving you what you think you're getting? Um, is there a regulatory system that watches over that? Is there testing um, of what's on the shelf and what comes out of, you know, an industrial mill? But even testing of what's in your community, if like what's on that label is actually what you're getting. And in many places, um, you know, someone says they're fortifying and they're not, um, or you have breakdown of different kinds of fortificants, so it's not as potent as it should be, or um, because of storage conditions or other things. So there are um, there are those issues, and then if there is a nicely packaged product, it's going to be expensive. So um, who is actually going to get that food? Is it really the people that you're targeting who have deficiencies already? Um, these are all things to think about when it comes to fortification. It sounds like there are a lot of complex factors at play and like there's health at risk with some of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, and you said this is um, the food fortification. It's not a program, but a set of policies, correct? Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so um, how much of a meaningful improvement did these food um, fortification policies have on these Tanzanian women? Um, was the amount of improvement made um, what you anticipated? It was actually more, um, which made us nervous um, because there was a, a, a sizable um, improvement in, in their folate status um, in terms of biomarkers and in, in terms of like their, their chance of being deficient. Um, that it actually made us worry a little bit when we first got our data and, you know, first, you know, you spend a second being excited and then you start having doubts and, and we know that we lost people to follow up. Like, what if we lost, what if we, what if the people who remained are those ones who were just, um, had more resources, they, maybe they buy more fortified foods, they're kind of better off than people that might be lost to follow up because you know they couldn't afford their rent here, they had to move. That probably means they also couldn't buy um, certain kinds of foods, right? Um, so is there some systematic bias there that led to that? Were there other changes that are happening? You know, it's not like we could do a randomized trial on something like this, right? So we're just looking at changes over time. Um, but maybe those changes over time would naturally occur or maybe part of them would naturally occur and then it was bumped up a bit more from fortified foods. Um, so in those situations, um, we did some data collection on what people were buying, what people were eating um, that could help us kind of strengthen that argument that this new foods were the reasons we see the changes, but there could have been, you know, it's a year and things change in a year. And, mm -hmm. um, 
they and they change kind of at a population level, like what's going on, what kind of foods are available, what everything costs changes. And an individual level here, these women who are to some degree postpartum, um, you know, maybe their diets will improve as their kids get older, or maybe they become pregnant again. Um, and then they start taking um, women in, in Tanzania and basically in most countries of the world during pregnancy will take um, folic acid supplements. Um, and the problem, and, and the reason why that doesn't solve the problem is that, you know, sometimes you don't take your supplements. Um, a lot of times women, especially in Tanzania and a lot of, uh, in a lot of similar countries, women will wait to go to antenatal care. Um, they might wait till their second trimester. And the, the window where folic acid in particular is important is like, just very, very early fetal development. It might be before you even know you're pregnant um, or, um, or around that time. So in an ideal world, you would be getting supplements before, you're, before conception um, so that your folic acid, you know, your folate status is good um, when you are in that early fetal development stage. Um, yeah, so so that can influence, and we tried to collect data on those to just kind of strengthen the argument that we think that this is because of um, improvements in the dietary quality of what they're actually eating. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, and so it sounds like initially the results were really positive, um, and so you kind of had to dig a little bit deeper into that. So once you started looking more, would you say that overall the benefits of the policies and of the studies really outweighed the costs associated with them? I would say yes. Um, and I'm saying that as a, a public health person who is not an economist, um, but I think there have been economic analyses as well around fortification um, and, and just the cost effectiveness of that as a strategy. Um, I think that there is still room for improvement um, because because of what can be fortified and and that <clears throat> that is not an easy question because there are nutrients that you basically what you need to do in a population is to kind of know what they're already eating and to say well people are not getting enough of folic acid iron you know zinc maybe some other stuff and then for each nutrient you need something where you can add it to a food and not you know, mess up the taste and not mess up, you know, like not have any separation or any loss of quality. Um, so some nutrients don't work well with certain foods or vehicles is what they're called. Um, so you have to match that up. And then you have to make sure that that vehicle is eaten by your target population in sufficient quantity that it alleviates the deficiency that's already there. Um, and then you have to make sure that like that happens in real life. So if it's a pure substitution where, you know, one day when I went out to buy flour, it was not fortified and now magically it is and the price is the same, that's not so bad, right? Um, but if there's an increase in price or this is a thing I don't normally buy, um, maybe if I have the means I and there's good labeling, I might go out and buy it. I might spend more just because I feel that's important. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of, you know, ifs there, right? Um, and if the main part of the diet is is corn, um, that's, you know, you need fortification of corn if that's what you want to, to really use to reach people. And the problem with that is that um, 
corn is locally produced. It's one of the, the big crops um, and people will grow their own. They might mill it themselves. They might go to like your village miller um, and, and get it milled. And so none of it has those opportunities for someone to come in, like a business to come in and, and fortify. Um, so there are efforts to kind of kind of do smaller scale fortification and to support like local millers to do that kind of thing. But that is an extra step, right? That it that has to go beyond kind of the industrial approach that works in high income countries. And that needs to still be worked out. Okay. Um, so you mentioned a little bit, um, what do you think could be improved upon in regards to um, the Tanzanian food fortification policies? Like, mm -hmm. are there any barriers to expanding the program? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, so some of those things we were talking about, like needing fortificants for maize, for corn, because mm -hmm. um, that's a big part of the diet. Um, needing strategies for small scale milling. So it's not just those big industrial producers. Um, we need testing um, to make sure that there's the quantity and the quality of the fortificant in the foods, both during processing and kind of coming out of the factory, but also just on the shelves. Um, and that's a whole other area of, you know, you need a kind of a, a food science type lab in a country and you need somebody who's going to go out and take samples from everywhere that you're targeting, um, bring them back to the lab analysis and make sure that people are kind of following the, the guidelines. So yeah, I think I think those are three big areas. Well, that is great. Um, I think that is all the questions we have today. Um, so we wanna thank you for joining us today on um, our episode um, of our podcast. Um, is there anything else that you would like to add to today's discussion? No, I think it's, um... Thank you for 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 reminding. It's been a couple of years since I um, we did this project, and it just helped me kind of think about what are what are all those challenges that we face. And remember running around Dar es Salaam trying to get our participants and our data, or some some good memories um, from all of it too. So yeah, thanks for the opportunity to just kind of share some of the issues that are involved here. Yes, ma'am. No problem. Well, if that's everything, I think this will conclude the end of our um, podcast. Great. So thank, thank you. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you all so very much for listening again to our podcast episode today on global health. We want to specifically thank Dr. Laura Schwab-Reese for conducting this podcast series because without her, we would not be able to do this. Thank you to all of our listeners out there listening all over the world. We truly appreciate your support. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure you share it and go check out all the other episodes on this series of Let's Evaluate It.